1: The FT.
2: In this week's show, BP in Russia.
1: One of the very interesting things about this deal is that it's classic BP as it used to be before the Gulf of Mexico. Risky, long term, in hostile environments, so to speak.
2: OPEC and rising oil prices.
1: The intention
0: appears to be to hold prices below the level of $100 a barrel. Saudi Arabia has stated publicly that it wants a price of between $70 and $80. It's obviously well out of that range. And this seems to be a quiet effort to to cool the market.
2: And regulation for national grid.
0: What's frustrating from their point of view is it's largely out of their hands because the state regulators are influenced by political and public opinion and there's very little that national grid can do to influence their decisions.
2: You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Joining me in the studio this week is the FT's energy correspondent, David Blair, and Lex writer, Vincent Boland. We start this week back with BP again and Chief Executive Bob Dudley's unveiling of a $16 billion share swap with Rosneft Russia's biggest oil producer. The deal will give BP access to potentially vast reserves in the Russian Arctic, but also makes the Russian state indirectly BP's largest single shareholder. Vincent, thanks much for joining us. The deal also has quite big implications, BP's other big venture in Russia, TNK BP. And I just wondered um, if you could sort of flesh out what those implications potentially are.
1: Well, I think that BP's alliance with Rosneft does change the nature of its relationships in Russia very considerably. Up to now, it has all been through the 50-50 joint venture with TNK. So TNK BP has been BP's route into the Russian market. And that accounts now for about 25% of BP's production and I think 20% of reserves. So it's a pretty significant chunk of the BP corporate and and sort of resource landscape. But TNKBP's reserves and its ability to keep producing is relatively limited, whereas Rosneft's is unlimited, because Rosneft is the Russian state's oil company. So I think that by teaming up with a much bigger player in Russia now than TNKBP, I think that the question mark now hangs over TNKBP and what role will it play in BP's business going forward and what does B P do with the fifty percent stake it has in T and K B P.
2: We spoke to the Russian billionaires who own the other half of, of TNKBP T N K B P over the weekend and they were already making noises saying that they would have a look at the, the fine print, the sort of legal fine print of their contract with BP and saying that under that contract BP needs to get approval, I think, for anything else it wants to do in Russia from these shareholders before doing anything. I mean, who knows what they end up doing, but it, obviously they want to have some kind of role, don't they, in, in the new tie-up.
1: Yes, I think they would. And what they're looking for, presumably, is a piece of the BP-Rosneft action, so to speak. I think that, that this BP-Rosneft deal is going, for both sides, is going to raise the question, where do we go from here and what do we do and how do we realise the value that we have created already? That's the big question for them. Team KBP is a very valuable company in its own right. I think now they may very well revive this idea of floating it or selling it. The oligarchs could very well sell their stake to BP and then it would be folded into the Rosneft Alliance. That's another potential scenario that I see, uh, certainly I think as an option for all of them. I'm pretty certain that the TNK shareholders will accept the right price for their stake if it's offered to them. um, If somebody makes them an offer they can't refuse, they won't refuse it.
2: And I guess the interesting thing here is, is that all this sort of the joint venture on Arctic exploration, uh, whilst obviously very interesting and potentially very lucrative, and we're not going to see any returns on that what, for the next sort of ten, fifteen 15 years or so.
1: Absolutely. This is, a very, this is quite a long game that BP is playing here. One of the very interesting things about this deal is that it's classic BP as it used to be before the Gulf of Mexico. Risky, long term, in hostile environment, so to speak. And I mean, both in terms of the fact that it's in the Arctic Sea and also in a relatively hostile environment politically um, because Russia is not the easiest country in which to do business. So this is a classic piece of old-fashioned BP M&A here. It's sending a big signal, I think, to BP's competitors for a start that we're back but it also is potentially very risky from the American point of view because you know there's, there's so many liabilities still outstanding from the Gulf of Mexico that it's quite a risky thing to do from a public perception or political perception point of view in America.
2: Thank you very much and we'll come back to you hopefully when we um, get back to Bob Dudley and his unveiling of BP's new strategy at the beginning of next month. Thanks very much. Moving on to the continued battle to keep oil prices from escalating towards $100 a barrel and beyond. The IEA's its monthly report on Tuesday reported that some OPEC countries had actually been quietly raising um, their production. Um, now I've got David here. David, what's going on? The
0: OPEC countries with the largest amount of spare capacity have significantly increased their output over the last month. This isn't because of any change in OPEC policy. Quotas formally remain exactly as they were. There's been no announcement about this, but the IEA has disclosed that several hundred thousand barrels a day of extra supply have been provided to the market, principally by Saudi Arabia, which of course retains the bulk of OPEC spare capacity. And the intention appears to be to hold prices below the level of $100 a barrel. Saudi Arabia has stated publicly that it wants a price of between $70 and $80. It's obviously well out of that range, and this seems to be a quiet effort to, to cool the market.
2: And why quiet? talked about this before. I mean, OPEC could convene an extraordinary meeting to actually formally change their production quotas. Um, Do they not want to sort of make a huge fuss about it? Because they have sort of publicly attacked the IA for recent comments warning that the high prices could down the fragile economic recovery?
0: In theory, OPEC could summon an extraordinary meeting and they could announce to the world that they are increasing their output. they could raise their quotas to allow that to take place, and they could do it all formally and in public. In practice, that isn't a viable option uh, because it would expose the divisions within OPEC. There are significant member states who have said publicly that they do want an oil price of $100 a barrel and would be extremely reluctant to allow any change of policy along those lines. To add to the complexity, one of those countries, Iran, currently holds the presidency of OPEC. So if such a meeting were to be convened, it would be up to the Iranians to organize it and to chair it. And they clearly probably wouldn't be willing to do that. So to avoid the diplomatic minefield that would be involved in any exercise like that. It seems that Saudi Arabia and some other Gulf countries have just decided unilaterally to increase their own output.
2: And crucially, I guess, is this the amount that they've been quietly putting into the market, is that actually going to reduce prices back to the level where the Saudis feel comfortable?
0: It seems unlikely that the present increase in output is going to significantly bear down on prices or bring the price back to the range of $70 to $80 a barrel. It does for the moment seem to be holding it below 100 and it remains to be seen whether the increase in output which has been disclosed from December is replicated in January as well. Uh, if it also takes place this month if there's a further increase in output in january then perhaps that might uh, that might send prices heading downwards again by significantly more but uh, it remains to be seen whether the output cut has been sustained this month
2: Okay, well, we'll keep tracking that topic. Thanks very much. And to our final topic for today, National Grid. The shares are down just over 2% or so this morning, David. Um, And we're expecting a a long-awaited ruling from New York state regulators on on the company there. Um, what, What are they looking at?
0: National Grid has got a problem in America. And the key problem is that their fate is largely in the hands of state regulators who determine how much they can charge their customers. And tomorrow, the New York state regulator will give its ruling in a national grid application to increase the amount that it charges its customers who buy from a particular distribution company called the Niagara Mohawk Company. Now, the company had wanted to put up its charges by the equivalent of $390 million. But according to a draft ruling, they're only going to get $108 million. And this would allow a return on equity of 9.1%. But the market and analysts have been hoping for something rather closer to 10%. So it falls significantly short of expectations. And
2: hence the share price dropped today. And that
0: may well be the, the reason for the share price dropping today.
2: And so, what's National Grid saying about this? Are they worried at all about it or or, or not?
0: Well, they acknowledge they do have a problem in the US. And what's frustrating from their point of view is it's largely out of their hands because the state regulators are influenced by political and public opinion. And there's very little that National Grid can do to influence their decisions beyond making the best possible submission. Um, So, they do acknowledge they have a problem. But they do point out that. Elsewhere in the US, uh, state regulators have reached more favourable decisions for them. For example, in Rhode Island, the regulator there has decided to completely decouple the revenues that National Grid earns from the amount of energy that it supplies, which is to follow the model that's, that's adopted here in the UK, for example. And that allows National Grid a much more predictable and consistent revenue stream. Um, So in one of the four US states where they operate, the regulatory environment has improved a great deal. And national grid stressed that, of course. Their difficulty is that in the other three, and most importantly in New York, the biggest state that they serve, things are still very difficult.
2: And how big for them is is this an issue as as, as a group? Because they've put a lot of their investment and also management time into the US in recent years.
0: Well, the US provided 39% of operating profit in 2009-10. The interesting thing is that it provided 60.5% of revenue, so there's a significant asymmetry there. And when you compare it to the performance of the UK business, there's a complete mirror image. The UK provided only 39.5% of revenue, but 61% of operating profit. So it's a reflection of how the returns over here are so much better than they are over there. And the figures are really quite striking. In the U.S., National Grid fights these endless battles with regulators to get a 10% return on equity. Here in the U.K., the nominal return on equity for the electricity transmission business in 9 10 was 14.2%. And for gas transmission, it was 16.8%. So if you're an investor, you might well ask, well, why put any money into the U.S. at all when you can get such significantly better returns over here? And that's the great strategic question that National Grid one day are going to have to grapple with. I mean, they're either going to have to fix their businesses in the US or sell them and and exit the market.
2: You've been speaking to some of the investors as well. What are they saying about the strategy and also, I guess, about implications possibly for Steve Holiday, who has, he hasn't staked his future on the US business performing well, but he has invested a lot of his time in the US. It is very much his strategy, isn't it, that they're out there?
0: Yes, uh, although in fairness, it should be pointed out that the National Grizz acquisitions of U.S. assets predates Steve Holliday's arrival as chief executive. The acquisitions took place between 1998 and 2006, and he became chief executive in January 2007. But nonetheless, he has restated time and time again his commitment to the American business. He now spends about one week of every month over there and he's adamant that he can make it work and that the regulatory environment is changing in a way that's favourable to him. But the question is, if we have any more of these rulings, such as the one we're expecting tomorrow, his argument gets undermined with every such ruling.
2: Thank you very much. We'll, We'll see what comes out in that ruling tomorrow. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank my guests, David Blair and Vincent Boland. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
0: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
1: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach. And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface.